You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. Welcome to the CPO podcast, the podcast series for the Center for Education Policy and Equalizing Opportunities at the UCL Institute for Education. In today's episode, Sam Sims, a research fellow at UCL, discusses his research on how to improve teacher effectiveness in science. Sam, can you tell us a little more about the topics we're going to be discussing today? Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about a research project on how best to teach science. And um, there's a variety of views on this, but it's possible to distinguish two somewhat opposed schools of thought on the question. So on the one hand, there are proponents of inquiry-based science teaching, which broadly speaking aims to provide students with knowledge of science via investigations. In essence, pupils learning about science by conducting experiments. Uh, And the argument in support of this approach is that it's thought to be more meaningful for pupils to derive their own knowledge through experiments um, or just kind of motivating because you get to, you know, play with some, uh, some fun science equipment and to learn by doing. On the other hand, there are opponents of inquiry-based teaching who um, advocate for teachers essentially just providing the knowledge more directly to the pupils. And the argument here is generally couched in terms that if we ask pupils to conduct uh, complicated science experiments, um, then the additional kind of demands that place on, uh, on their working memory, the additional cognitive load involved, um, is like to sort of crowd out Um, the underlying science and perhaps pupils come away remembering the equipment they used rather than the underlying science that the teacher's trying to get across. Great. Super interesting. How did you come to study this particular topic? Uh, Well, I'm interested in teachers more generally. So, for example, my PhD focused on the shortage of teachers in England and the shortage of teachers is particularly acute in science. And that kind of got me into reading more about science teaching methods uh, and in particular, the debate around inquiry uh, science teaching. Uh, more On a more practical level, I suppose my PhD supervisor, uh, John Jerem, who has led a lot of the analytical work on the PISA study, the kind of international student assessment study um, for England. And the, he has spotted that in the uh, pupil questionnaires in that data, they've actually got a series of carefully designed questions intended to measure the frequency with which pupils experience inquiry-based science teaching in their science classes. Um, so we kind of set out to investigate using this data the relationship between inquiry-based science teaching and pupil attainment. So why do you think this is important? There's a long-standing concern in the UK that as a country we don't produce enough scientists, so in particular graduates, Um, in the science, technology, engineering, mathematics area. And that this leads to shortages of highly skilled labor. You can, it's not hard to find um, newspaper articles or the CBI, for instance, talking about the shortage of uh, STEM graduates. And there is actually some evidence in the academic literature that um, the level of technical skills in a country is related to uh, the amount of innovation, the amount of new patents and so on. So I think it's important for the economy that we get science teaching right. Um, But there's also a more of a, I suppose you could call it a democratic argument in that um, more educationalists have argued that uh, in order to have a well-informed citizenry who's able to kind of understand the the big issues of the day, things like climate change, food safety, vaccinations and so on, 
uh, we need to have a scientifically literate um, citizenry. So there's both uh, an economic argument and a democratic argument for paying careful attention to how we teach science. Sure. Um, in order to conduct this research, um, what do you do? Uh, what is your methodology? Uh, so we took these seven questions, all of which um, were assessing a different part of inquiry-based science teaching. So, for example, one of the questions was um, students spend time in the laboratory doing uh, practical experiments or uh, students are asked to draw conclusions from an experiment they've conducted. And we kind of boiled them down into a single score for the overall level of inquiry-based science teaching in these people's classes. And because this is the PISA data, we've got a really nice representative sample of 4,000 secondary school pupils in England. Um, and that also has the PISA test results in it. Uh, but we also link that to government data on pupils' test scores at age 11 and age 16 and these kind of um, high stakes exams, which are externally marked and, and so on. So we've got some nice test score data in there as well. And then we look at quite simply, what's the relationship between the frequency of inquiry-based science teaching that a student receives and their results in uh, science examinations. Uh, one obvious concern with that approach, because we're, we're not running an experiment here, is that um, perhaps uh, the high attaining pupils or pupils in effective schools um, just happen to be experiencing more inquiry-based science teaching. Um, but it's not the inquiry-based science teaching that's actually improving their attainment. Uh, so it's the question of correlation and causation. And we try to address this as well as we can by uh, doing two things, really. One is comparing students who attend the same schools. So we're looking at within school variation where all the pupils you know, share the same uh, school leadership or the, uh, the facilities and resources in the school and so on, same peers. And we also control for a whole bunch of pupil characteristics, but most importantly, uh, the pupils' prior attainment at age 11. So we're essentially comparing pupils in the same schools who, as far as we can tell on these test results, have similar levels of ability, and then seeing if any association remains between inquiry-based science and, and their, their, their science results. Thanks, that's really clear. That, that makes a lot of sense. So um, with this research, what have you found or, or what do you intend to find? Um, so we find no statistically significant association between uh, the amount of inquiry-based science teaching the uh, pupil experiences and their results on these high stakes exams at age 16. So it just doesn't seem to matter one way or the other how much inquiry science um, these pupils uh, get. But one kind of very reasonable objection to this is that inquiry science teaching is not just a method of teaching science, but actually aims at teaching pupils different things. So you're teaching them how to perhaps think like a scientist or how to interpret results, how to, um, you know, you're, you're preparing them to go out into the world and be more like a scientist. Um, and and that's, a, that's a reasonable uh, kind of counter argument. Uh, but the nice thing about our data set is that in this PISA data, because the PISA uh, tests are international, they're not examining, they can't examine, you know, the national curriculum in England or the curriculum in France. So the way that the people who run PISA get around this is to assess pupils' ability to kind of apply scientific ideas to so-called real-world problems, so much more just thinking like a scientist. 
so when we use the PISA results as our outcome measure rather than the GCSE results, um, we actually find, uh, again, the overall pattern is no association, but we find that pupils who experience high levels of inquiry science actually perform slightly worse on those tests. So it seems like um, uh, inquiry science teaching isn't helping even on these tests that are arguably better aligned to, um, to the aims of inquiry. Lastly, there's an important debate in this literature about um, the importance of guidance. So you can imagine um, two pupils, both of whom experience lots of inquiry-based science teaching, but one of the pupils um, is able to, to some extent, determine the experiments they're going to do, determine the precise methods or equipment they use, and has um, a lot of freedom in interpreting the results. At the same time, you could teach using an inquiry method, uh, but the teacher could have high levels of guidance there, you know, advising the pupils exactly which experiment to do, um, telling them precisely which methods to use, and even kind of helping them do the interpretation at the end. And the theory here would be that this kind of maintains all the benefits in terms of motivation and interest from inquiry, but stops pupils experiencing that kind of cognitive overload from having to make lots of decisions and use lots of equipment um, and the ambiguity that comes with that. So to test this, we split our sample in two, essentially, into those that experience the high level of guidance. And again, we measured this using uh, four questions from the pupil questionnaire and pupils that experience a low level of guidance. And then within those groups, we look to see if there's an association between inquiry and uh, pupil attainment. And uh, we do actually find some positive associations here between moderate levels of inquiry teaching, so not pupils that are doing it all the time, uh, and not pupils that are doing none of it, just kind of a happy medium in a way, and attainment in science, where the pupils are receiving lots of guidance on how to do it. So this is kind of consistent with what we might expect from theory. Really well thought through, um, makes a lot of sense. Um, how does this research add to what we already know though, and what should science teachers take away from it? So there are, uh, there's quite a lot of existing evidence on this, and quite a lot of that is from nice experimental studies uh, where they've randomly uh, exposed half of the pupils to inquiry and half of the pupils not to inquiry. Um, but they're often uh, conducted in lab settings or in small samples um, in real schools. Uh, I think what our study adds is that we show that you get broadly the same set of results, uh, this idea that um, uh, inquiry seems to be no better than direct instruction unless it's highly guided. Uh, but we show that this happens, you know, this result holds in kind of real world schools in a nice representative sample and using these um, high stakes outcome measures. In terms of what teachers should take away from this, uh, I think the crucial thing is around that ensuring that if you're using inquiry, it should be highly guided. And so some of the practical ways that teachers can achieve that are through uh, reducing the scope or the number of decisions involved in the investigations, the experiments that pupils run, uh, modeling the solutions or modeling the um, investigations for pupils before they try them themselves. So they have a kind of model to work from or providing kind of prompts and heuristics that help direct pupils attention towards the, you know, the crucial aspects of the task they're doing or the crucial sort of scientific uh, content of that task. Uh, to stop this problem of them being kind of overloaded with tasks and information. 
And even then, when inquiry is highly guided, it should be used in moderation. So we only find any positive association between inquiry and um, science attainment for pupils who do it in moderate doses and highly guided. So I think teachers should see this as being kind of one tool amongst the range of teaching methods, including more direct forms of instruction. Thank you for your time, Sam, and thank you for listening to the CPO podcast. You can find out more about Sam's work and his role at the Center for Education Policy and Equalizing Opportunities on our website at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash C-E-E-E-O. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 